Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Today, we're going to focus on narratives. Narratives are... mm, collections of ideas that we put together to describe the world. They can be as broad as a religion or as narrow as, for instance, a court case. If you think about a set of facts and you have two different lawyers arguing uh, different sets of facts to be zealous advocates of their client's position, those each are narratives to describe the world around us, to have some sort of a pattern that explains the way things are. That's right. It's a lot about making sense of the world. And from the perspective of the brain, we look for cause and effect relationships everywhere. And this is something about our memory as well. We tend to store information better if we can structure it. And this is true of memory champions. So people that uh, have the largest memory capacities, they have to actively work on the information, kind of mold it and build it. And building memories is about finding a structure, making associations so that there's more ways to get to the memory. So we actively do this all the time. And there are many cases in life where narratives become extremely important for uh, legal cases or in finance. And so we're going to take this on as an applied topic today. And we'll talk from both a perspective of why we need narratives and what what our brain allows us to do with them and how they work in our life. For me, when I'm looking at uh, narratives, I I see them often when we're analyzing a given industry or we're looking at a particular company. There's all sorts of different facts that you're trying to put into context. We often refer to it as a mosaic. You'll take these individual facts that are like tiles to be able to make a picture, and you string them together to have what that picture is. Now, the interesting thing about a mosaic is we can have the same tiles and make very different pictures. And that is a pretty good encapsulation of the issues that come up associated with bias when we're taking facts, putting them together, and trying to make sense of the world. When we have this mosaic that we can assemble in different ways, a lot of the, uh, it's almost as like we have a puzzle and you have a different set of instructions than I do. And the instructions come about from what we bring to the situation. So we'll tend to actively process the information, try to actively make sense of it. And my background might be different than yours. So I'll tend to put the pieces in different spots. We talk about schemas here. So a schema is sort of a generalized uh, way that the world works that we've seen before, and we tend toward making associations that bring up a schema. You mentioned context. One context comes up. You walk into a room, there's an argument. You you start to think automatically there's some dramas played out, and you're right away trying to assemble the pieces to figure out what has happened. It's interesting. You can think about this even in personal relationships. You go and you have somebody that you've had interaction with. You make some judgments about their character, and so then you tend to view everything they do in the context of those judgments. That's the same thing with all sorts of different applications of a given narrative. That's a narrative about that person, who it is, what motivates them. So you have a tendency to kind of fill in the blanks. And what's also interesting is often we have incomplete information. So we're trying to kind of round out the narrative by filling in what we perceive to be the connection between these facts. Often that creates situations 
where we may have misunderstandings and there may be pretty significant disconnects between two different parties looking at the same situation. Right. We have to make inferences all the time, and we sometimes have different talents as far as what stream of information we can attend to. So attention is limited, unfortunately. Some people will attend a little bit more to the social dynamics. So in any group, most people most of the time are going to get some of the conversation, but will all miss some things. And some people are a little more intuitive with this than others. By contrast, we can also build machinery. So we're a species that builds computers and spacecraft and airplanes, and that's really about mechanical information. So stringing together cause and effect in order to make machinery can happen, but also stringing effect causes and effects to understand a negotiation or some instance of personal drama that's sort of the same overall process but operating with different materials. And we've all had the experience where we know that somebody has a narrative or some preconception of who we are and they read things into messages that we have somehow communicated either non-verbally or through making inferences based off of things that we say that we didn't really intend, but it's just falling within their narrative, their schema of how it is they interpreted us and how they think they tend to understand who they think we are and what our motivations are. Typically, uh, we have what's called confirmation bias, which will bleed into some of these things, where you have a notion of how you think the world is or how you think someone is, and you will seek out different evidence that actually is consistent with that notion and then reject evidence that is inconsistent with that notion. So, for instance, if you believe that Dan is a guy who typically is looking to find, oh, I don't know, Dan, what's a good example? Uh, uh, <laughs> this is horrible. Uh, we're going to have to cut this piece because I can't think of anything and I've, I've lost this one. <laughs> All right, I'll pick up a thread here. So confirmation bias can be everywhere in our lives. We're actively working on the project of making sense of the world. And so we'll sometimes go down a road where we've made conclusions a little prematurely. So in courtrooms, the judge will always say, you know, don't decide anything. There's more evidence to be presented. So just hold off. We actually can't really do that. So we're always going to be making conclusions and filling in little gaps here and there. And uh, related to the brain, our prefrontal cortex is one of the largely expanded regions. It's kind of multi-purpose. We think of it as the executive of the brain. I just read a study recently where the people with more efficient prefrontal functions, there's a genetic link here that some people process dopamine more efficiently and they have a little bit sharper of an ability to maintain information in the moment. Those same people are more susceptible to confirmation bias because it's as if their frontal lobes have sort of set up some structure to make sense of the world and then they get too carried away with it. So they actually do worse on a decision task because they can't listen to the probabilities in the environment anymore because they've been too active in creating a theory and then seeking out evidence in sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy way. In the context of investing, uh, it's often pretty constant that you'll find practitioners, their skills are typically rooted in things like accounting and finance, mathematics, where there is a definite answer. The reality is, uh, me as a lawyer, I have a tendency to be able to see things typically more in the fashion where I can take several collections of facts, put them together in different ways, and come up with different answers. And the reality is, is that when you look at various practitioners, they're doing the same thing, 
but they tend to be very solid in that view and they tend to not want to waver from that view. The problem with it is, is so much of what we see is subjectively created reality. It's kind of like a mass subjectivity when we're talking about things that actually occur within markets because we all have a collection of facts the question is is does the vast majority of economic power that's active in the market adopt that collection of facts within the same narrative and what is that narrative but that narrative is not necessarily a reflection of something that is static you mentioned the uh, law example. I think being a lawyer or being on a debate team at some point in your life valuable because it forces you to take on a different perspective. It's like these are the sort of ground truth facts out in the world that everyone kind of agrees that's the evidence. And now you've got to spin a story. And if you try to spin a counter narrative to kind of back uh, a conclusion you don't actually believe yourself or don't don't find as likely at the beginning as a thought exercise that's incredibly valuable because it forces you to see the gaps in your favored narrative. We all have a kind of favored view of the world that we tend to impose upon facts. And what's so difficult about our lives is we can't see the gaps in those narratives unless we have a reason to shine the light on it. So that's again where our frontal lobes become relevant. You can you know, kind of willfully move your cognitive uh, arrangement around so that you can you can try to take the devil's advocate position. And in doing so, you notice uh, there's some strength here on the other side of that that I need to be aware of. So regardless of what you ultimately conclude, you make a better informed kind of judgment if you've taken multiple perspectives. I totally agree. I think that people can become much better thinkers if they have a respect for the fact that there's a lot of different ways to view things, there's a lot of different interpretations that we can give to a set of facts. It's very questionable in many cases to say that one interpretation is necessarily superior to another. Now, over time, we can definitely see that a number of interpretations of given facts yield a certain result, and perhaps when we see that efficacy over time, then we may give it more weight. But we need to always be conscious of the fact that there's a lot of different ways to approach a given set of facts and come up with a given narrative to describe the world that we're experiencing. That's right. And so we probably have a lot of individual variation in how we're going to see things. We do have some commonalities, though, which are worth discussing. So I think of the example of uh, well-produced television shows. You know, they, they tend to pull us in because the characters have some relatable qualities or uh, we just want to see what will happen next as they work on a conflict and resolve it. The most uninteresting show would be everyone's life's going great and nothing particularly interesting happens, right? And if you think about Greek mythology as one of those uh, examples of very time-worn story that stays relevant and the Greek gods had their foibles and their problems and we can kind of learn about our own lives through that drama. And so we have some common things that we're going to focus on. We're a very social species and our brains have are sort of wired for social uh, reinforcement. We find faces very interesting. We enjoy the look of um, attractive faces and smiling faces. And fearful faces certainly move us to action quickly. So the brain is built on this set of instincts for survival. And that plays into our narrative. So some common things are going to be interesting to all of us and maybe steer us down certain roads. And it happens very subtly and implicitly. And we don't always notice it happening. 
It's interesting. Narratives can also be uh, very powerful when there's a lot of social acceptance. So if there's a group of people that subscribes to a narrative, there's a lot of power and pressure that's put on other people that are in proximity of them to adopt the same narrative. Uh, so I thought it was interesting that you, you mentioned uh, this, this interplay. And I think also when we tell a story or we uh, try to instruct others, the quality of our narrative that we can present is going to very much impact how effective we are as a speaker or a message producer. And so, uh, again, part of that active process is you want to shape you know, how you're going to influence someone else and get them to, to understand where you're coming from or to remember something or notice something. You know, we're really the authors of that in our daily lives. Absolutely. So I see this all the time in the analysis of securities. Somebody will come up with a very articulate description uh, of an investment idea. And the reality is, is it, it, it turns out to be very flawed. But it's delivered in such a articulate manner that it seems very attractive. And for investors who don't actually go and do their own work after they hear something like this, they really open themselves to a situation where they're listening or, or basically assuming that the candy bar tastes really good because the packaging was nice. The packaging matters a great deal. So one of my colleagues, Don Kretz, is interested in cognitive bias. Don was a former uh, intelligence analyst in the Marines. And in doing that, he would regularly have to make narratives up. So the job was essentially there are all these uh, facts which may uh, inform you about some potential threat or crisis. And some of them would be incorrect and some of them would be uh, debatable. And the job really involved how you create some narrative. And the key there to quality is, are you right, but are you confident is another thing. So our confidence level will sometimes rise or fall with how good a fit uh, something seems, how plausible it seems. Don described this as uh, intelligence analysis was like trying to assemble a puzzle with some of the pieces missing and some pieces sprinkled in from other puzzles. So there would be sometimes things that had to be discounted. And so it's all this, the quality of the fit really matters. And we have a very intuitive sense about that. And what you don't want to arrive at is a confident conclusion where you're wrong, right? That's actually worse than a, an unconfident correct. And so what the world, this is a classic case for mental models because what the world gives us and what's out there, you know, we don't see all of it. And so our interpretation, it's really a question of fit between how our brains interpret the world and what the feedback is. And it's interesting, too, because if you think about the, the context matters quite a bit as well in all of that analysis. So when you come across a set of facts and you're trying to come up with a narrative to interpret them, uh, your prior experience will often color how you interpret the new set of facts that you perceive. How, how did you perceive things in the past and what outcomes did you witness? That will often shape how you're going to perceive a new set of facts. I think from a brain perspective, we often talk about neural networks. And at any given point, I like what you said about context, because the context will will cue up some association from the past. And it's almost like any link in a chain of neurons that represent uh, a particular situation 
can be a, a trigger to, to activating the whole set. And this is where expertise becomes really relevant because when we've studied something over and over again, we tend to, to form these strong pathways and all it takes is just uh, activating one of those elements of a pathway and then you, you get that schema sort of coming to life. And so uh, when we have a lot of expertise, we sometimes get caught out making poor decisions because we over-infer. You know, it, an element in the context fits our mental structure too well, and too much of it just activates for us, and it seems very plausible, we're very confident in it. And this probably leads to some of the disastrous thinking that's led us uh, off of financial cliffs or uh, led to situations where we've, we've launched uh, a space mission that ended in disaster. You know, it, it seemed correct enough at the time, and we maybe over-inferred and get really caught out badly. Yeah, it's interesting, Dan. I think of instances where I may look at an industry, for instance, I recently looked at the tissue paper industry, and uh, it's been an industry where there's been a fair amount of capacity that's come online. Costs have been rising for things like pulp, shipping, and uh, at the same point in time, because of incremental capacity that came into the market, prices for tissue actually fell. And all of the analysts that look at that market have a very negative view because they've been living through that for two years. But as a generalist, I looked at the opportunity. A lot of the securities became quite depressed that serviced that market. And I don't have the baggage of having lived through uh, the higher expectations that they had that were later disappointed. I often see this arise where you can step in with a new and fresh perspective where you're not haunted by the bias of your prior experience. Now, of course, the question is, are you missing something? You don't have uh, the appropriate amount of context when you're coming to your conclusion, but you do have the advantage of not being shrouded by that bias that's encumbering your thought. You can sometimes know too much. Um, and you can definitely know too little. So it seems as if there's maybe some sweet spot where you can borrow narratives from your past that are relevant and analyzing structural kind of variables within, for instance, the, the paper industry. Very few of us are going to have much expertise there. But if you're an insider on paper, you might really over-infer a lot of the time because you've seen it before, right? And sometimes you can't step out of that perspective. And so an effective strategy might be, uh, you know, definitely invest in things you know something about, but not the same industry all the time, or you develop these blind spots over time. And much like the gaps we talked about earlier, you're going to infer things and you can get too confident if your inference uh, comes from something you've seen too many times. Definitely. Now, it's also the case that you can walk into a situation where you haven't, you haven't had enough experience in that particular market or in that uh, looking at a particular set of facts, and you draw conclusions that are inappropriate. But the nice thing about that is you know, hopefully, that you are new to the game and so you're, it's easier for you to be knocked from your narrative. When you know something very intensely, when you've spent a tremendous amount of time analyzing something, it, a lot of beliefs become so deeply ingrained that it's very difficult for you to step away from an existing narrative that you've adopted. That's right. And our conscious minds will sort of helplessly go along with something. If we put in a lot of work 
that feels like we're all over that, right? There, there's some subjective sense that we probably are very unlikely to be wrong now. And so you can see the danger there if you, you get overattached. And this can also happen through committing to a, an opinion publicly, right? You don't want to, we have this consistency bias where you, you want to seem like you're the same person and we value this sort of even temperament and reliability. Uh, George can be counted on to, to do this particular thing in all circumstances. And uh, we, we struggle with admitting we were wrong and we really struggle with it when we've invested a lot of time and effort. It's, it takes a sort of a heroic act to upend some narrative we've put a lot of work behind and you have to do it to, to avoid that blind spot that comes from too much confidence. Absolutely. I believe the bias here that tends to bleed in is an illusion of control that you go and you engage in something and you spend so much time that somehow that equates to having a outlook that is correct or having an outlook that will lead to a successful uh, a successful outcome. So illusions of control are fascinating, and you can you can produce this in a in a lab setting really simply by uh, you know someone's set up to press a button and they get a little green light bulb that's kind of rewarding. You try to make the light bulb go on with each button press. Uh, researchers have programmed the light to come on a lot, and if it illuminates a great deal, we tend to take credit for it. We we you know. Success has many authors, and <laughs> failure is an, or- an orphan, and that, that's really true. So uh, if the, the bulb illuminates a great deal, we'll over that we had a lot to do with that, and it's an illusion of control because you really didn't have any control of the bulb. If you set the bulb to come on very f- infrequently, people disown this and say, well, I don't have much control over that. So the more success you experience, the more confident you're going to become, and if you do that over and over again, you can sometimes really get off the rails with it and start to believe you're much more capable than you are. And so that that's a, a great danger that we face. It's always interesting as well when you mix in price associated with narrative. So when uh, we're looking at a particular investment idea and the price tends to move in a certain direction, you're going to come up with, it's going to tend to give a lot more weight to the narrative that is consistent with the movement in price. And timing's so critical here. So I think you're absolutely right. We tend to think very short term. If it goes up in the moment, we will maybe over infer the importance of that. If you look at markets over time, it's a very different exercise than than hawkishly watching every turn of the price. And uh, price is a clear concrete variable and so many other things about narratives are sort of invisible and we don't yet know how they'll play out. We don't get enough evidence um, to sort of sway us. That's where we have to fill in gaps on our own, which can get us into trouble. So uh, with that, we probably should recap some actionable advice about narratives. George, what's your, one of your takeaway messages on how to construct a good narrative and how to stick to it or know when to abandon it? So I think it's important to always remember that In the vast majority of cases, narratives are collections of facts, and they're they're made to come up with some sort of a story. Know that that collection of facts can uh, be made uh, in several different ways. There can be a number of different uh, views that can be held that can be diametrically opposed to one another. The best example 
of that is probably a legal case where there's one person that's arguing a set of facts and they're arguing for an interpretation of how a particular event occurred. And then there's another person that has the same facts, but they're arguing a completely different interpretation of those facts. It's good to be able to hold two different views of the world or maybe three or four different views of the world in your head at the same time and know that you're, the one that you choose to adopt or you think is the predominant narrative that is the best description of the universe, it's likely flawed. It's really what comes from a mental model. We don't, we don't have a perfect model of the world in our heads. And being too confident is where you need to really question your assumptions. From a research standpoint, this is related to another cognitive illusion called the illusion of explanatory depth. And that is that we tend, when we've seen something over and over in the world, we tend to over-infer our understanding level of it. The remedy to that is to really think through the chain of cause and effect and try to shine the light on those gaps in your knowledge. And in doing so, you'll know what to study. Being an active information processor, fill in those gaps. Um, but celebrate your narratives as well, because that means you're actively taking in the information and making sense of it, and you're an active thinker in that sense too. Yeah, it's a very powerful mechanism, a narrative. I don't want to discount it, but they can often also lead us astray. All right. I think that wraps it up. Let's go play some cards. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.